a money problem is something that can be solved with a series of factual, tactical action mm. steps. For example, how much house can I really afford? What is a reasonable, sustainable rate of withdrawal if I'm heading into retirement? My credit score is in the crapper. How do I improve it? Money problems. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Hey there, welcome back. On this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast, I'm chatting with Manisha Thakur. She's worked in financial services for over 30 years. I'm just approaching 30, so you've got more, more on me. With an emphasis on women's economic empowerment and financial well-being, she's been featured everywhere. Wall Street Journal, New York Times, NPR, PBS, CNN, CNBC, Real Simple, and Women's Health. Today, her, her work focuses on helping individuals of all ages balance financial health and emotional wealth. Thakur earned her MBA from Harvard Business School, her BA from Wellesley College, and is both a chartered financial analyst, what we often call a CFA, and a certified financial planner, a CFP. The dual designation makes you one of the smartest people in the industry. But one of the reasons I wanted her on the podcast is she's the author of Money Zen, The Secret to Finding Your Enough. Manisha, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast. Oh, Jonathan, thank you so much for having me. First, you know, we're going to launch into this. I'm excited to have you here. Where do you call home and where are you connecting from today? Well, at the present moment, I'm talking to you from Portland, Oregon. I split my time between Portland, Oregon and rural Maine. And I'm about to move to Washington, D.C. and split my time between Washington and rural Maine. Why split your time in two different places? That's rare. And then why move from... It has to do with writing Money Zen. So I have always been completely obsessed with my career and earning money, which we'll dive into. But I have two nephews and a niece who I absolutely adore, and they are at an age where they still like adults. And they happen to live in Washington, D.C., and my brother happens to have a summer home in rural Maine. So I decided to buy myself places within three miles of each of their homes so that I can be an auntie extraordinaire. Wow, that's awesome. We'll get into a little bit about that too, but just before we go there, where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town in Indiana called Columbus. And it was a very interesting growing up experience. I'm mixed race and it was a very white town. And then back then I was pretty dorky and didn't fit in with the cheerleaders and the cool kids. And so I'm not sure I have such fond memories of talking about that period, but it does very much play into how I ended up writing Money Zen to try and cure myself from the toxic mindset that I was living with. So when you were young in, in Indiana, what sort of lessons did you learn about money and entrepreneurship? I learned positive lessons, which is ironic, given what transpired in my adulthood. 
My dad, who's Indian, worked in finance and always treated my younger brother and I identically in terms of talking about money and teaching us. And I have a very vivid memory about age 11 where my dad sat me down with his HP 12C financial calculator and in a unique moment of father-daughter bonding showed me how to do future value calculations of what my IRA could look like at retirement if I saved my babysitting and lawn mowing money and it compounded at various different rates of return. After seeing those numbers, I was like, I'm all in. And my mom is a hippie and she always, back before it was cool, had me playing with gender neutral toys and told me that money gives women voices Mm. and choices. And so I had very positive money influences growing up. Did you say 11? Yes. You were doing that 12C calculation when you were 11. So my dad did that to me when I was nine and 10 years old as well. And I, I think that makes us very unique. I'm wondering if that set of calculations and you seeing the time value of money at that age sort of sets you on the trajectory towards investment management and this and the work you've done in investment banking and investment management years and years and years later. Without a doubt. I mean, it definitely got me passionately interested in the financial services world. Although interestingly, when I got out of undergrad, this was back in the early 90s, where the trendy thing to do was to go into investment banking. They had these two year programs and they were feeders into top business schools. And so I dived into that world and six months in, I detested it because I realized your job was to sit around all day until a managing director at 6 p.m. on the way out threw some work on your desk and you'd have to stay up till four in the morning making PowerPoints. And this was back in the day when you looked for jobs in the newspaper. So I opened up the New York Times and uh, looked at the job wanted section and I found this thing called investment management and so six years out, six months out of undergrad, I shifted into investment management and I was hooked from the get-go given the seeds that were planted when I was younger. One of my favorite sentences in the book, you, you write this, and I, I laughed out loud by myself in my office when I read this. You said, the, in comparison to that six-month period, you said the investment management vibe was a little less deathmatch and a little more professional tennis. And I love it. Competitive and demanding, but civilized. I found that, you know, when I entered investment management, I found that to be anything but the case. Like, did you find that when you went in there? Did you find it to be civilized or did you find it to be also cutthroat? Well, it's all relative, right? So I think that there's, you know, I think any job in finance is cutthroat. Right. But not to the cage fight level that I experienced in the early 90s in investment banking. Fair. I think my starting class was there were 400 of us. So I think after two years, there were only two of us left. Maybe there were three of us. There were three of us left. So it was pretty, it was rough, but it was, you know, I know I've heard stories from multiple guests on the podcast that they started off investment banking and they last six months, year and a half. And they're just, they all hate it. They just hated it. So yeah, but it is the source of a lot of wealth. Well, and you know what? I had a very interesting experience when I left after six months because I thought 
the managing director to whom I resigned, who's the head of the New York practice, M&A practice, I thought he would beat me on the head because they just spent all this money training me. And before they got any real profit and work out of me, I'm leaving. And instead, he said a variation of, you know what, Manisha, good for you. Get out of here before your family becomes so used to this style of living that you can't get right. out. Right. And two other reasonably senior people pulled me into their offices to say goodbye and gave me similar messages. And for listeners, this was back before tech took off and there were all kinds of other ways to make tons of money. Back then, really, investment banking was a very classic path to big ticket wealth. And I never forgotten that memory and that advice of not getting trapped in work you don't like simply because of an income stream that you and your family have grown used to. Go back a little bit further. What is it that gave you that? Why did you seek that level of wealth? Like, why was that important to you? Like as a kid or in high school or when you were in college, where did that bug grab you? It hit me when I was doing my junior year abroad at Oxford. I stumbled upon Virginia Woolf's book, uh, Room of One's Own in which she, back in 1917, when she wrote the book, said in order to fully actualize, women need some space and some money of their own. Now note, she didn't say women need millions of, or multi-millions in order to do that, but that really was the capstone on a series of events that started when I was growing up awkwardly in Indiana. Back when I was growing up in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, I was teased mercilessly. I mean, the kids called me everything from cow butt to thunder thighs and a whole bunch of other things that I go into in the book. And I felt so ostracized by the cool kids that I turned to my academics because I felt accepted by my teachers and I would get praise. And then as you move into the work world, what replaces grades and accolades from teachers, mm. but promotions and money. And so a set of behaviors that helped protect me as a young child ended up as a runaway trait, a subconscious way of moving through the world and in the world of finance when you work like a maniac and you're trying to earn a lot of money that's called being a good employee and so there's not framework or an ecosystem to stop you in your tracks and when you're so internally driven out of what i call a small t trauma Something that happens to you before the age of 25 when your brain is fully formed and creates a pretty strong neural pathway. It's not like I, as an adult, sat there and thought, well, like, you know, back when I was in fifth grade, so-and-so said what? But the pattern of seeking 
acceptance through external things, be it grades or money, was set in place back then. And for many very successful people, it's interesting to note that these kind of things are drivers. Oh yeah, we're gonna we're definitely. I was gonna share this. I had this conversation with my wife over the weekend. I kid you not. I not anticipating. She has no idea about this interview or what we're going to talk about or your book or anything. So your book is so timely and it hit me personally, but this is the conversation I was having. I I was telling her, I often feel like I'm only valuable to the extent that I'm productive. Like if I didn't work and produce, I'm going to say this, I wouldn't be lovable. Does that make sense to you? It absolutely does. And I cannot tell you during the two-year period in which I was researching this book, talking not just to academic experts, but to a wide range of individuals across careers and income streams and geographies and ethnic backgrounds, how incredibly widespread that belief is And it's a very powerful and yet at the same time painful Hmm. way to look at life. And I'm right there with you. Yeah. I mean, you just sort of answered the question, but do you see one of us might be different than the respectful gender? So I'm wondering, is this gendered at all? On average, is this a gendered issue? First question. The second question is, do you find it more concentrated in the West? Or did you interview people that were, you know, from... India, Asia, other places, and they have a similar sense? I did not find the productivity linkage to being lovable to be gender specific. What I found to be gender specific was the items that the productivity was focused on. Got it. So, you know, one of the things I see a lot with career women is this feeling that they have to be not just the chief financial officer of their homes, but the chief cupcake makers for their kids, you know, PTA events. And so that kind of drive, and it's not just women who are in executive roles. I interviewed a yoga instructor who felt the number of people in her class and the number of private lessons she was asked to teach was a sense, drove her sense of worth and therefore mm. whether she was lovable. Yeah. So what about the international aspect? Is it a Western thing or is it also everywhere in the world? It's not everywhere in the world. In the Scandinavian countries, over the, the last two years, I happened to visit Denmark, Sweden, and Finland, and I've been to Norway in the past. And one of the things about having widespread social safety nets and quite a bit of a tighter bell curve around incomes is that the emphasis on where you put your focus in life is 
not necessarily even 50-50 between work and all the other things. Maybe it's 40-60 between work and all the other things. I have found, however, and I, I can't speak to all other countries, but I can speak to what I've seen in India over my lifetime. And definitely when I was younger and we would go over to India to visit family and spend time Family was the dominant anchor, but thanks to this widespread advent of capitalism in India, I can tell you that there is a lot of the same dynamic occurring, not in the villages, but in the cities. Yeah, it's... So right from the outset, your book is different than other financial books. Like you you state explicitly, I believe, right? I don't remember exactly, but that this book wasn't written for people with money problems. It was written for people with money worries. I have all kinds of money worries. We're not going to go into my psychology here, but we just kind of touched on it a little bit. Can you explain the difference? What's a money problem? What's a money worry? And sort of who's the book for? A money problem is something that can be solved with a series of factual, tactical action steps. For example, how much house can I really afford? What is a reasonable, sustainable rate of withdrawal if I'm heading into retirement? My credit score is in the crapper. How do I improve it? Money problems. Money worries range from the proverbial, for women in particular, I'm going to end up old alone and under a bridge. Interestingly, 80% of men die married. 80% of women die single. And you can see it if you read the obituaries. So it's not a ridiculous worry on the part of women, but I see it across income spectrums. Many, many men or women who have more of a male outlook towards their work or are the co or primary breadwinner, that group worries that they won't be able to provide for Mm. their family and it's not a number driven it's a emotionally driven feeling yeah and so when i talk about money worries money worries are things that have emotional components to their solution versus purely factual tactical so it's not really finance at all. Like it's more, and I think you write about this in the book as well. You say something like money worries are a collective ache. Like I just said, the feeling that you're never going to measure up. You're never going to be enough. You're never going to do you know as well as you could. You're not living up to your expectations. These kinds of feelings. Yeah. And yeah. you know, you asked me who the book is for, and that plays right into this. The book is for anyone who has ever felt, no matter how much I earned, no matter how many accomplishments I achieve, no matter how much praise I receive, it's never enough. Often because I feel like I'm never enough. Or the flip side, it's also for people who feel that the answer to anything that ails them is what society tells us, and that is more. Do more, be more, buy more. 
those are the individuals who are struggling, I have found, with a painful never enough mindset. And it is people who want to step off that hamster wheel of that type of toxic thinking that this book is geared towards. Yeah. So there's two things that are going on in my head. I'm trying to tie the comments about the social infrastructure of Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, and how that's beneficial, specifically about this collective aching. How does having a social infrastructure make me feel more lovable if I'm less productive? Do you, do you, do you get the question? Okay. I absolutely do. And I think it stems from the way in which our culture in the US and now increasingly in some other countries as well. Has We've infected the world. <laughs> right, <laughs> literally. Well, thankfully not all of it, um, yeah. but the we've shifted from having jobs to careers to callings. And, you know, it's oft cited that when we meet somebody in the US, what do we ask each other within the first three questions? What do you do? Exactly. Yep. And overseas, in most countries, that is not the case. But we ask that question and we judge the person's answer and they judge our answer, whether it's conscious or subconscious. Therefore, we are placing a value on ourselves and our fellow human beings based not on who they are, their character, the joy of being around them, the curiosity they may inspire in you, but what they do. That's how we're valuing them. And so that's how I think about the answer to that question. Whereas if we take the Scandinavian countries, and again, anytime you take a large population, there are always exceptions. Sure. But what I find is that because there are social safety nets, because healthcare and childcare, elder care and education are not things that bankrupt you. You are not worried about those events bankrupting you. You are able to enjoy work for the sake of work. And of course, not everybody loves what they're doing for work in these countries, but you don't have to cling to them from a feeling of, oh my God, this work defines my very existence and subsistence in this world. Yeah. So that's what I think is the difference. Yeah. I want to push back a little bit. And the pushback is, so the United States has, I think, 5% of the global population and produces 25% of global GDP. So one presumes that in that hyper productivity, I think we'll call it hyper productivity, yep. There are new inventions that benefit the world, new medicines, new entertainments, new movies, new, you know, sneakers styles, new energy sources, new that comes out of this hyper productivity that's a benefit for everybody, right? So can we have it both ways? Do you think we can have both the advancement of all the technologies and the things and 
be more about being and less about doing? Let me say that I am a total capitalist and I think free markets are absolutely wonderful. But I do question whether the end outputs of our 25% of GDP that we're contributing is beneficial. And I'll just take one simple example. I've always struggled with my weight. But we are the world's dominant creator and seller of processed food-like products. Twinkie. Exactly. (laughs) We now have a global obesity problem that we have exported. Yeah. Is that productivity? We now have people all over the world feeling bad about themselves because they don't have the latest cool sneaker. Was that a good thing for us to export? Also, we've come up with technologies that enable us in many ways to work around the clock and lose our humanity. Is that a good benefit? So there are many contributions that we've made in a wide variety of areas healthcare, infrastructure, technology, engineering, that truly do benefit global society, but not all of it does. And so the question of if we be, can we still produce? I think the answer is yes. And I actually think we will be even more creative if we work less. I have found that as I finally slow down and I've stopped working on the weekends and I give myself a mental break and I have a firm end of my day, I'm more creative. And that has been a huge surprise because for 30 years, I always worked on weekends. I never took all of my vacation and I always worked in the evening and brought work home with me. You just described me. So I, I now feel bad about myself. So just, I'm kidding. So the first half of Money Zen, you already mentioned this a second ago. The first half of Money Zen is about the cult of never enough, personal trauma, and the sources are personal trauma, counterfeit financial culture, hustle culture, and biology. We're not going to go over all those. I'd love to hear you talk about the counterfeit financial culture, though. Yeah. Counterfeit financial culture is my name for the way in which we have anchored ourselves and our self-worth to false financial images. And by that, I mean, most of us know when we look at social media and we are looking at somebody's family pictures from vacation, we are seeing the kumbaya photo at the end. We're not seeing the photo of mom and dad at dinner giving each other the silent treatment or the kids having food fight or hissy fit. So we've all become curators of our lives thanks to social media. But much more insidious than this, I believe, is the way in which people are portrayed at every income level and profession in TV, and movies in particular, that genre, although it exists somewhat in magazines too. And the example I'll give is you pick any legal, medical, or police drama, 
and you look at the characters in there and you look at the clothes that they are wearing, the cars they're driving, the homes they're living in, the restaurants they hook up with their friends at to have a drink after work. I actually did some analysis on one character who's in the, the trending show on Netflix right now called Suits. It's a paralegal named Donna. And the fabric of the clothes that she wore was of such high quality. It was literally like jumping out from the screen, like, hello, I just came off the runway. And everything was exquisitely tailored. And her hair was perfect, her nails were perfect. And I added up what it would cost to live and groom and socialize in New York, where the show takes place, in theory. And you'd have to earn 30 to 50% more than what that position pays in order to live that way. And that is uniform across almost every character we see at every income level. So no matter what your job, when you see your job on TV, the image of that job on TV is wealthier than you have the capacity to reach. I have never heard of that before. That's incredible. It's shocking. And as I've mentioned, I've done this back of the envelope for a wide range of professions. And I'm hoping an economics PhD student will be listening to this and will write a thesis on it because it is exceptionally widespread. So we look at that outside. And then in our own neighborhoods, you know, growing up, you tended to live in neighborhoods where people had similar incomes because you went to get a mortgage, you had to put 20% down, the banks kept the mortgages on their books, so they actually cared if you could pay it back. And so it was very difficult to live beyond your means. We didn't have easy access to credit 30 years ago. Getting a credit card was a much bigger deal. And so what happened was when you looked at your neighbors, they were pretty much living a similar life to you. But now we look at the neighbors and, and we're like, well, they can do that. Why can't I do that too? They're driving a Range Rover. I have uh, a, I'm down have with a, my minivan. I have a neighbor. I moved into this guy who lives across the street. He's a manager of, I think of a brokerage complex in San Francisco. I'm not entirely sure. He has in his driveway, there's a Porsche, there's a BMW, there's a Mercedes, there's a Ducati motorcycle. And I'm just like, there's two people in the house, right? What are these cars for? <laughs> like, and he's out there washing them by, you know, every single day or every weekend by himself. He's out there with his diaper and his, like his, yeah, anyway. I love, it's a great couple, but yeah, I mean, right, the neighbors are completely different. It's, it's totally different. And I, I just, this idea that when we're watching ourselves on TV or those people who are holding our roles on TV and it's no wonder we all feel less than. Like every image of what we look at is more successful than how we feel. That's amazing. Correct. That's a great Correct. insight. How does that tie in with, you talk about Thich Nhat Hanh and Tara Brach and the idea of hungry ghosts. I love that idea. You know, I studied Buddhism. I still meditate and all this, but I studied it seriously for like three, four years. So I get it. But explain to other people, what's a hungry ghost? In lay language, the Buddhist concept is that amongst us walk hungry ghosts who have distended bellies because they're so starved for love 
and recognition and acceptance, but their throats are as thin as a needle. So no matter how much of that they receive, they can never fill the hunger. And I would argue that we have a whole heck of a lot more hungry ghosts running around as a result of these factors that I talk about in Money Zen that then we have had in any point in history. Mm. It is human nature to compare ourselves to others. Yep. It is human nature to want more than what we have. Uh, purpose of all religions is in some sense to tell us to be present, to feel we have enough, and to give and be charitable to those who have less than we do. But the other forces we've discussed here are so strong now yep. that we have an army of hungry ghosts. Yep, yep. And we're, we're all moved in that direction. So the second half of Money Zen is dedicated to sort of developing your framework, which is the financial health and emotional wealth equals Money Zen. Can you walk us through that? Sure. Money Zen is the end place that I'm hoping readers will find themselves. And I define it as feeling calm, confidence, and clarity around both your relationship with money and the role that you want it to play in your life. And what I've observed is for those of us who are trapped in any of the different layers of feeling like it's not enough and we're not enough, oftentimes we are focused on generating financial wealth, thinking that is going to solve the problem, as opposed to optimizing our financial health. And I'm certainly not saying that money isn't important, because if you don't have money, that's horribly stressful. What I'm saying is, and this has been now coming out more and more in the research, is that, well, let me backtrack a little bit. You and I have been around when the study came out that said $75,000 yep. is what you need in order to be happy. Anything beyond that doesn't make you happier. And people on the East and West Coast are rolling their eyeballs like, what planet do you live on? Like, my family can't. So the original author of this study teamed up with some folks at Penn and they went back and revisited. And obviously the study came out a, a long time ago, so we'd have to inflation adjust the 75,000. But what they found was, yeah, the study was wrong, but not because the number was wrong. It's because there is a level of income that varies for all of us. You can't put one number on it, but there's a level of income, which I would define as financial health, that earnings beyond that do not increase your life satisfaction unless you have a base layer, what they called well-being and what I call emotional wealth. And that really is the crux of it. It sounds simple. Now, identifying what is the right level of financial health for you is something that often 
requires working with a professional because there are some factual answers to that. It can be a money problem, but it also can be a money worry in terms of thinking about the role that you want money to play in your life. And my argument is if you focus solely on financial wealth, which is something that I did, the financial services industry, when you work in it, encourages it. Other industries do too. You can, as I did, wake up in your 50s and discover you're emotionally bankrupt. You're fine financially, but you got nothing else. Yep. And that was my case. It sounds like, and let's see if this framing works. It sounds like money is necessary, but not sufficient to increase happiness, whether it's exponentially or in a straight line. You have to have a baseline of emotional well-being that is necessary and sufficient, right? So that's the thing that drives your exploding sustainable happiness. Yeah. The, the finance doesn't. I keep trying to tell people this. I think your book is is incredible. You know, I hope that a few copies go off the shelves because of this interview. That'd be awesome. So I, I think we can admit there's a ton of noise out there. Like there's a lot of people saying a lot of things about how we should live and how we should invest and all this kind of stuff. So I want you to simplify it for us. A brand new listener, what is one step that that person can take today that will lead to better you know, personal and financial success? One of my favorite exercises is to ask people, if you woke up and $50 million after tax dropped on your head, and at the same minute you were given a diagnosis that you had exactly five years left to live, what would you stop doing and what would you start doing? And I've been asking people this question for over a decade now, and the answers are shockingly similar. People would stop worrying, they would stop work, they would stop feeling driven and compelled to do things they don't want to do, but they feel mm -hmm. society is saying they should do. They would spend more time with family and friends. They would do more volunteer work. They would travel. They would engage in hobbies. And so those big pictures tend to be the same. And what I encourage people to do is to dive down into that, what would I start and pick something and start it. You can start it small. And learn a new language is a very common one. Well, go hop on the Duolingo app. You only need to do five minutes a day and it's amazing how much progress you can make. And so that exercise I find to be very powerful. Another one comes from a woman I interviewed who used to run a hypertension center at the University of Colorado. And what she found over the 20 plus years that she worked there was people who were able to get their hypertension under control tended to have one thing in common. And that was that they ultimately got to a point where they realized to manage their health, when they were feeling off kilter, they needed to ask themselves in this moment to move incrementally forward towards more contentment. 
to whom or to what do I need to connect? And this kind of goes back to your earlier point about the disparity between the percent of population that we are and the percent of global GDP that we contribute. Study after study is showing we are depressed and lonely. In fact, just the other day, Dr. Ruth Westheimer, the noted sex therapist for years, has decided she's done with it. She now wants to be at age 95, a loneliness therapist to help cure us of what she now sees as, and our general surgeon has said as well that loneliness and depression is a huge, huge issue. So this question, you know, what one step can you do after listening to us talk? When you're not feeling great, ask to whom or what I should connect. It might just be a short phone call to your spouse, to your kids, to a, a friend. Might be a pan of brownies sitting on your sofa binge watching the current round of, you know, catching up on succession or billionaire or something, or billions rather. There's a few places I want to, this, this almost might, makes me want to start the interview over and go down a different rabbit hole, but I'm going to avoid that desire. So there's the second half to the same question is one thing that they can do and then one thing they should stop doing. Yeah. One thing, since many people tell me they would like to stop work, stopping worrying, stopping feeling stressed out. It's a little harder. It's not as, it's like, a, those are like dials. Well, most of us can't just afford to stop work, but we can carve out times where we give ourselves permission to emotionally disconnect from work. And that actually, according to researchers, is the distinguishing factor between people who are literally workaholics I was, to people who have positive work engagement, as so many people do, that they love their work. Their work isn't tormenting them. And the reason it isn't is because they do it. And then they turn their minds off while they go and do these other things. So what can you stop doing? You can stop staying mentally attached to your work. And maybe you started in really small ways. For instance, I feel like nobody eats breakfast with their family anymore, but if you're lucky enough to do that at breakfast, don't start thinking about work. Give yourself time to mentally disengage. Don't check your emails first thing in the morning. Enjoy brushing your teeth, taking your shower, then engage. I mean, maybe it's only 15 minutes of that disengagement, but the ultimate goal would be to get to weekends, evenings, vacations where you can disengage. And when that happens, then oftentimes you feel less stressed, you have more space, you can rethink how you want to handle your money, then you solve some money problems and your money worries start to reduce. So that's sort of the peeling back of the onion on the stopping side of the yeah. equation. Yeah. And it's not I, easy. No, it's not. This is, so whenever we talk about work life and unhappiness or the, the sense of value we get from the work or any kind of these conversations, I always, as I'm thinking, you just dropped us that you get 50 million bucks and then a five year you know, sentence, basically. The thing that my brain went to was I would do 
pretty much exactly what I'm doing, which is working way too hard. Like I work a lot of hours, but I love this stuff. I love doing these podcasts. I love talking about money. I love, you know, helping clients with things. I love writing about it. I, you know, I got another book I'm working on. So I think I must have won the lottery in terms of figuring out what I'm good at, what I enjoy, and what is, you know, provides me compensation. Like I found the thing. I wonder just within your work, have you run into many people like that? Are there people that would work more if they could, if they had more time, they love doing it, they make good money, they, they're happy with what they do and they should? Or is it, or am I like, do I have rose colored glasses on? Well, I mean, I would argue Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey right now both love their work and spend a lot of time on it and are having no difficulty finding some time to fall in love. Right. So I think you can do both. I would ask you, how else do you re what else is bringing you joy in your life because i would argue whatever that is what's fueling you to be able to extract that joy out of your work as well so multiple sources of joy are important you can't just have one source of joy <laughs> fair <laughs> just before we wrap up i want to ask you just a couple more personal things is there anything that people don't know about you that you want them to know maybe you've told them and they forgot but is there something that's really important to you yeah, there's something that I'm starting to talk about now that I am in a different stage and I'm no longer in a corporate environment. I work for myself. I'm bipolar too. And I was not diagnosed until I was in my 40s. And part of it was because when you're in mania in financial services and you're working around the clock, once again, good employee, and when I would fall into these really depressed states, I assumed it was because I'd been working so hard, I'd hit the wall. Also because when I would bring it up, I would bring it up to a my general practitioner who often most GPs are not trained, at least up until maybe the last couple of years to even think about mental health issues. Right. I look back and think, dear Lord, look at what I accomplished without a proper diagnosis and without being on antipsychotics as I am now. And I think my whole world has changed now that I have gotten help. There used to be static in my head all the time that I was fighting against. And so one of the things that I am striving to do in this next phase is particularly amongst financial professionals to talk about mental health because many of us are afraid to reach out and certainly to talk about it because then our clients will think, well, I don't want a crazy financial advisor. Yep. I was on a panel last year for Wealth Management Magazine. Two people on the panel had suffered multiple diagnoses of cancer and had beaten it and come back and beaten it and come back. One guy had serious, like serious mental health issues, you know, coming out of childhood trauma and some other things. Mm -hmm. And I had recently lost my brother, so I'd gone through a trauma. And so there's all, and the crowd, there's like 700 people in the crowd and every single person was like, that was the most important, all financial services people, that was the most important panel we saw at this conference because we do not give anyone, but especially financial advisors and the financial world space for their right. mental health issues. So that's huge. Right. Thank you for sharing that, that's a big deal. If you could go back 30 years, 
I know that the advice is going to be, I should do this earlier and give yourself one piece of advice. What would you say? Without a doubt, treasure friendships and mm. don't make them transactional. So easy in the business world to have transactional friends and you move to the next firm, the next place, you stay in touch with them for a year on LinkedIn and then they're gone and you move forward. And I look at people who have 20, 30, 40 year friendships and they are bursting with emotional wealth. So that is something I deeply regret that I did not do. And in this stage of my life, I'm trying to make amends and see who will take me back. Oh, many people will take you back. Come on. That's, I discovered the same thing after my brother died. My whole social circle, he died just at the end of the pandemic. So my whole social circle became my brother and his family. Yeah. And uh, there's people that, you know, I used to hang out with 15 years ago that showed up as his services and were around, but I wasn't really connected to. And so I've rebuilt, same thing, rebuilt those relationships. It's really, really important. I totally agree. Tell people how they can connect with you, find your work. You know, what do you need from them? I like to keep things simple. So my entire life, everything about the book, me, previous books I've written live at moneyzen.com. And the one thing I could use desperately from anybody who reads the book and enjoys it is a short two to three sentence review on Amazon. Apparently the way the algorithms work, if you don't have enough reviews, you don't fall into the, if you like this, you will like that. And I am woefully far behind. I had no idea how important those reviews are. So it takes less than five minutes and I would be so grateful. I'll do one myself for sure. And anyone listening, please do it as well. Definitely get the book. Manisha, thank you so much for coming on. This has been enlightening. I'm glad to have met you. I thank you for coming on the show. Jonathan, thank you for your incredibly insightful questions. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.